Good evening and welcome here to 5 by 15. It's great to see so many of you joining us tonight and it has indeed been quite a day. We don't always get a new Prime Minister, but I have to say when I was watching the quote coronation of Liz Truss at the Queen Elizabeth Hall, it sort of seemed like it was only yesterday that we were having a go with another Prime Minister. However, wait to be seen what will happen. And as I don't know about you, but I can't think of a better way to spend the next hour not having to listen to uh, Liz Truss talk about pledges about, uh, well, the energy crisis and this and that and the other. And let's go somewhere completely different. And that somewhere is to a small town in Germany called Jena, which at a particular period in history was literally the centre of critical thought, of romanticism, of understanding of the self. Ideas were formed in this small town that went on to shape how all of us think and how literature and how so much of our modern discourse uh, has ensued. Indeed, it would probably be a very, very good idea for the new Prime Minister if she was watching tonight, because it's a real understanding of the dilemma between narcissism and various kinds of self-interest. I'm thrilled to be welcoming Andrea Wolfe back to 5 by 15. Andrea was the author of the extraordinary book about Alexander von Humboldt, which won every award going. And she's here tonight with her book, The Magnificent Rebels, which is the story of this community in Jena. Uh, Andrea uh, is a, a, a fantastic writer. The reviews of this book have been extraordinary. I particularly liked the one that said, she makes the learning so light, um, but when you get to the back and you see the kind of work she's done to bring you just those key bits of information, you know this is a work of serious, serious scholarship. Joining her is Kirsty Lang, who is the well-known presenter of Front Row, and in fact is now the first female host of the fiendishly difficult Round Britain quiz. So I have absolutely no qualms about handing Andrea into the arms, or the metaphorical arms, since uh, Kirsty's in Vienna and Andrea is in London, the long distance arms of Kirsty for the next hour. The format is the same as usual. They'll be talking for about 45 minutes. I'm sure that you'll all have lots of questions and Andrea's well up to answering them, even the very philosophical ones. Uh, so please put them in the Q&A and please buy the book. The details will be in the chat. Now it's over to Kirsty and enjoy yourselves. Thank you so much, both of you. Thank you, Rosie. Um, I'm going to start by setting the scene a little bit for this book. Every so often in history, you get situations where a group of incredibly talented and unconventional individuals congregate in a particular place at a particular time and, and create this extraordinary flowering of creativity. So I'm thinking of Paris in the 1920s, for instance, where you had Ernest Hemingway and F. Scott Fitzgerald, Gertrude Stein, Chagall, Picasso, Josephine Baker, all those jazz musicians, etc. Um, and then, of course, in London, the Bloomsbury set. And Andrea Wolfe's book is about just such a group. Her marvellous rebels are poets, they're playwrights, they're philosophers, they're scientists, they include Goethe, Schiller, Hegel, Alexander von Humboldt, and they congregated roughly between 1794 and 1806, um, as Rosie said, in the small German university town of Jena, and they fermented a revolution of the mind. Wolf argues that their radical ideas about self, about free will, about freedom of expression still shape the way we live now. Uh, they were the first romantics and their ideas were spread to Britain through Wordsworth and Coleridge. 
Um, and, Yen, uh, and Andrea has called them the Yenna set, a bit like the free-spirited Bloomsbury set, um, because there are quite a few parallels which we're going to discuss. So they lived in each other's pockets. Um, they were friends. They were they slept with each other. They frequently fell out with each other. Um, so their relationships were intense, both intellectually and emotionally. Andrea spent five years, including much of lockdown, plowing through archives, reading uh, their letters. Fortunately, they wrote loads of letters, diaries, uh, pamphlets and books, weaving this moment uh, together when all these brilliant people uh, were in Yenna. And she's woven it together in, in a really compelling narrative. It is a fabulous book. Um, congratulations, uh, Andrea. Uh, why don't we start with the genesis of this, uh, of Marvelous Revels? I mean, how did you come up with the idea? Well, first of all, thank you very much for the lovely introduction. You kind of summarized the book in a I really need to learn this kind of elevator pitch too. I have failed to do that so far. So the the so I kind of almost fell into this story when I was doing the research for my previous book about Alexander von Humboldt, because Humboldt had spent many, many months uh, in Jena visiting his brother who lived there. So as I was doing the research in Jena and I was walking through the streets and you know looking around, I saw all these name plaques on the houses with the with the names of the people who had lived there. And it was, I just couldn't believe my eyes because it was literally the who is who of Germany's um, thinkers and poets and philosophers. And, and though some of these names or quite a few of these names might not be very well known to the English speaking world, they are really the superstars of um, German literature and philosophy. So let me just very briefly kind of say who was actually there. So there was, as you said, there was the, there was Goethe, who was Germany's most famous poet. There was the playwright Friedrich Schiller, who was who'd become famous through the play, his revolutionary play, The Robbers, and who liked to write with um, rotten apples in the in the drawer of his desk. There was the young poet Novalis, who played with death and darkness, and who died at the age of twenty-eight and frozen in time. And youth, he became really the epitome of the young romantic. And some of you might have heard about him through Penelope Fitzgerald's beautiful novel, *The Blue Flower*. There were there was a bunch there were a bunch of philosophers. The philosopher Fichte, who put the self at center stage. There was Friedrich Schelling, who redefined our relationship with nature. And then Hegel, who would become one of the most famous philosophers of the Western world. There were a couple of brothers, um, pairs of brothers. There were the Schlegel brothers, Friedrich and August Wilhelm, who were both literary critics and writers. And then there were the Humboldt brothers, the older one, Wilhelm von Humboldt, who was the founder, later the founder of the first university in Berlin, and then Alexander von Humboldt, who would become the most famous um, scientist uh, of our time. And then there were a couple of quite extraordinary women, and we're going to talk a little bit more, um, hopefully, about them later. But one of them was August Wilhelm's um, wife, Caroline Schlegel. And each of these great intellects lived a life worth telling. But what's even more extraordinary is that they all, so more than just the individual stories, is that they all came together in this tiny little town at exactly the same time. So I wanted to find out why. Why did they all come together and found this extraordinary story of radical ideas about the creative power of the of the self and the true meaning of um of freedom so they really changed the way 
we think about the world. And and I'm interested. Before we get before we get onto that, can we? Can, I just wanted to because you posed that question: Why Yenna? I mean, what what were the special social and political circumstances that allowed this pretty small town? I mean, you you know, you say in the book, it kind of takes about five minutes to cross the whole place. What what allowed it to become this center for for free expression when you know much you know elsewhere in Europe there's there's, there's you know there's censorship, there's authoritarian governments. Why here? So let me start actually with Germany, just to like set the scene a little bit. So Germany at the end of the 18th century was not a unified nation. It was a patchwork of 1500 states ranging from tiny principalities to powerful states such as Austria and Prussia. And Jena was in the small um, in the small duchy of Saxe Weimar, which was pretty much in the center of what was then called the Holy Roman Empire. Now, one advantage or you know, unintended advantage of this fragmentation was that censorship was very difficult to enforce in this kind of you know, jigsaw of states because each state had their own set of rules. So very different to more centrally ruled states such as England or France. England, France, and Spain also had powerful monarchies with a global reach through the colonies. Um, America had its unexplored West, uh, unexplored West. But Germany, in Germany, everything was kind of inward looking and splintered. So the German imagination was really fed through words and books. And Germans were fanatical readers. Um, I mean, everybody was reading. The, the book market was four to five times bigger than the, than the English book market. Literacy rates soared. So Saxony and Prussia were actually leading the world um, at the end of the 18th century. So, And there were around 50 universities compared to two in England. So arguments, ideas traveled very, very easily in Germany. So that's the kind of, I think, the, the framework of this. And then the question is, of course, why Jena? Because Jena is, as you said, was a, a very small town, four and a half thousand inhabitants. It took less than 10 minutes to cross. Um, it was, but it was a university town. So it was very much dominated by its university, by its almost 900 students. So out of the four and a half thousand, um, 900 were students. It was a bustling town. Um, there were um, it kind of had a, still a medieval feel. There was an open market space, cobblestones. There were plenty of taverns, bookbinders, a university with 50,000 um, uh, books. But, and and it was, a, it was a, a town that attracted more liberally minded thinkers and writers than any other town in Germany. Um, and so everybody who had problems with their authorities in their home states would arrive in Jena. And the reason for that was, well, one reason was that it was ruled by a quite enlightened ruler who kind of encouraged a certain openness and frankness. But the real reason was the university or this, the governance of the university, because the university had once belonged to Saxony, but then through complicated inheritance laws, it was nominally ruled by four different Saxon um Dukes with no one really in charge. So it meant that professors could basically teach here what they wanted. So it became this place that attracted people who had, uh, you know, revolutionary ideas. The more of the, those arrived, the more they attracted it. So, so it becomes you, this. Yeah. 
Yeah. So that brings me to my next question. So that's the place. Uh, and you've got this unique set of circumstances, lack of censorship and so on and the university. What about the timing? Because it's just after the French Revolution. Isn't it? How important is, is, is that to the, to, to the Yenna set? Well, the French Revolution is hugely important. So the Yenna set story really begins in 1794. So that's five years after the French Revolution. But I think in order to understand just how important the French Revolution is, we need to understand what happened actually before. So the Yenas, the members of the Yenaset were born into a world that was completely different to ours. It was ruled by monarchs that decided pretty much every detail of their subject's life. So they could refuse permission to get married. They could decide the professions of their subjects. Some could sell their subjects as mercenaries to other, other nations. They The feudal system um, was still... And you know, was still there in in some parts of Europe. So it was a it was a world that was really ruled by despotism, inequality, and control. And then the French Revolution happened in 1789, and it was an event that was so dramatic and pivotal that it that hardly anyone in Europe was unaffected by it. And what what the French revolutionaries did is they declared all men to be equal. And when they did that. They promised a new social order that was based on the idea of, you know, the power of freedom. So and and the power of ideas. So what? So this is the moment, really, I think, where philosophy leaves the kind of ivory tower of rarefied thought and arrives in the pe- in the minds of ordinary people. So the French revolutionaries or the French Revolution proved that ideas are more powerful than weapons or the you know the might of kings and queens so everybody was watching france how the idea of a state emerged into a real state and and that so the the french revolutionaries really changed the political landscape of europe but the yena set incited the revolution of the mind that we still feel today. So yes, so the French Revolution was incredibly important. So that's the timing, that's the place. Let's go back to the people. Um, I think the most famous of the Yenisset uh, must be Goethe in, in, in both you know, British and German terms. Explain to us why he's so important and also the, the, the role he plays in the group, because he's a bit older than the rest of them. He's, he's, he's this rather congenial father figure who oversees this this group of unruly, excitable youngsters. <laughs> but yeah. why is he so important? Well, he, I mean, he was really Germany's most celebrated um, poet. And he actually didn't live in Jena. He lived in, in nearby Weimar, which was about 15 miles away. But he spent many, many months every year in Jena. So that's why I'm kind of counting him into the, into the Jena set. He became an international literary superstar in the 1770s with his novel, The Sorrows of Young Werther, and which was a novel about a kind of forlorn lover who commits um, suicide. And it inspired a whole generation. Um, it was the, the so-called storm and stress um, era. And it was, a, it, was a, it was a novel that really encouraged this idea that feelings, or that set feelings against the rationalism of the Enlightenment. So Werther, the Soros of the young Werther was so popular that there was a Werther fever, you know, young men dressed in a Werther uniform. Um, there, people said that many men, they kind of 
started a wave of suicides. Lord Byron later, yeah, 40 years later, joked to, to Goethe that um, his Werther had killed more people, more young men than the Napoleonic Wars. So it is, he was, I mean, he was really, really huge, basically. But by the but but by 1794, he was not the kind of dashing young Apollo of his youth anymore. He was he was in his mid-40s, not very old for us, but you know, then he was kind of, you know, the grand old man. And he had also become part of the Duchy's administration. So he was the privy councillor of the of the Duke. He was in charge of the court theatre and the mines of the, the Duchy's mines. And, and he was pretty depressed in the mid-1790s because of the um, French Revolutionary Wars. And he found solace in the sciences. So he became obsessed with botany, comparative anatomy. Uh, he was in charge of kind of building a botanical garden in Jena. So he's he's kind of like basically hiding inside the sciences. And then in 1794, he met Friedrich Schiller, who was the playwright. Um, and it was the beginning of one of the most fruitful literary friendships um, in, in German history. And to, because they... Both of them had problems writing. I mean, Goethe had not produced anything remarkable for years. So they kind of came together and they inspired each other and they challenged each other and they edited each other's work. So, so that's the kind of framework. And then, but then come, then this kind of gaggle of young rebellious kind of thinkers and arrives and he is older more famous. So he takes on this role of, you know, almost like a benevolent godfather who, whenever they are in trouble, he tries to mediate and help out and because they squabble a lot. But at the same time, they their new and radical ideas very much kind of invigorate him. So he he's almost he's breathing in their youth. Um, and it's and, and he just begin and he really, I mean, this is like the beginning of one of the most productive phases of his life. And um, and they in turn worship him, and they put him on a pedestal and, and call him their kind of demigod. So it's a it's a quite well functioning relationship basically between that younger group and the older kind of Goethe. Now I have to confess, my favourite uh, character in this group uh, it's this extraordinary woman, Carolina. Um, I mean, she's the sort of person you read about, and you you know kind of wish she was still alive so you could hang out with her. Tell us tell us about her. Yeah, she's also, I mean, she's definitely one of my favorites too. So let me introduce her properly because her name is Caroline Michaelis Böhme Schläger, Schlegel Schiller, Schilling, Schelling. Oh my God, let me say that again. Caroline Michaelis Böhme Schlegel Schelling. So she carries the name or carried the name of her father and her three husbands. So, but at the same time, she refused used to be restricted by the by the role that society had intended for women at that time and she really stands at the heart of the Yena set she was not just their muse she really was a kind of um, a very important member of the Yena set she was born in 1763 she was the daughter of a famous german um scholar she was raised on a diet of literature poetry and politics she was beautiful she was witty she was educated clever and she was fiercely independently minded she married young she was widowed by the age of 24 she then hung out with german revolutionaries only to be imprisoned by the prussians for being a sympathizer with the french revolution 
in prison. So not only that, in prison, she discovered that she was pregnant um, after a one night stand with an 18-year-old French soldier. So quite, you know, quite something. As you do. <laughs> quite something at a time when it was scandalous behavior to just be on your own with a man in a, in a room. So then the young um, writer, well, well no, but she was not deterred, actually, by this. She said that, you know, why should her life be destroyed by one little foolishness? You know, a mistake that would have meant nothing had she been a man. So she has this very fierce sense of, you know, we're equal, you know, back then. Then the writer, August Wilhelm Schlegel, comes really to rescue her. He marries her, gives her a new name, which is really, you know, for her a new beginning, and then takes her to Jena in seventeen. 96, um, where she becomes the heart of the Yena set. So she creates the physical space they, they meet in, they work together and stuff like that. But she's also, she's a razor sharp critic who dissects poets and plays and essays with kind of deep knowledge. Her husband begins to rely on her literary mind. She, uh, she takes on the role as the editor of their literary magazine. She writes, um, reviews under her husband's name and together with her husband she translates 16 Shakespeare plays which are to this day the standard edition in Germany and and not only that and I, you know I, I quite like this idea that they their his work on Shakespeare he he publishes um, some lectures on Shakespeare which are very much informed by his discussion with her resurrect Shakespeare, in England. So because in the 18th century, Shakespeare had become quite unpopular. His language was seen as being vulgar and ordinary and ungrammatical. Voltaire, for example, had called Hamlet a, a work of a drunken savage. So then he writes this book, which all the, the young romantics in, in England read. So William Wordsworth, for example, says that it was a, a, you know, we needed a German critic to teach us correctly about Shakespeare. I think you've got a great um, uh, uh, quote in your book, or, or maybe it's a line from you, where you talk about Carolina's role, um, uh, and you say if the Yeniset was an orchestra, she was the conductor, um, you know, the, the, the hostess, the editor of the magazine, the co-translator of, of, of Shakespeare, and, and so on. Uh, but I want to get into their, their relationships with each other because Friedrich uh, uh, Schlegel, um, her brother-in-law, wrote in one of his letters, we're all part of the same family of magnificent outlaws. And it's interesting that he uses this word family because um, their relationships with each other were intense, weren't they? Yes. So they 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 really, I mean, I think they were a family of outlaws in this respect. So they, there's, there's two things, two sides to this. One is that they worked together. I mean, they, I mean, so first of all, no, first of all, actually, Friedrich Schelling, Friedrich, sorry, all these people are called Friedrich and a sh name with it. <laughs> it's very confusing. You have Schlegel, the Schlegel brothers, Caroline, and Friedrich Schlegel's lover, the divorced writer Dorothea Feit. They live together. So this is in their house in Vienna. So this is almost like the first commune in, in, in Germany. But they also work together. And they the people who don't live in the house come over during the day. They work together. They have lunches. So Caroline is, as you said, um, really like a She's she's entertaining the guests, but she's also very much kind of steering the discussions. And they so they write together, they work together, and they love this kind of communal way of working. 
um, it's very, very important for them. I mean, Novala says at some stage, you know, I, I produce best in dialogue. So it's it's the working together that is very important for them. And then, you know, I mean, th- this book is really, it's a book about big ideas like the like the beginning of the modern South, but at the same time, it's also a bit of a soap opera because they are, I mean, and there's so much kind of scandals and sex in this, in this, um, in this book. They are, you know, they're passionate love affairs, they're open marriages, they are children born out of wedlock. Um, like Friedrich Schlegel, for example, lives together with Dorothea Feit, who's divorced, they're not married, but he also has um other lovers on the side. Then um as if that wasn't scandalous enough, he publishes a autobiographical erotic novel in which he invites the readers to his bedroom, watching him and Dorothea make love in very, very explicit um, detail. Or or you have, I mean, you know, you have diary pages where you can see what's going on. So Novalis, for example, he doggedly records his sexual urges and his masturbation in his diary. I mean, it literally goes like every day, like, lewd fantasy in the morning, more lewdness in the afternoon. And then, you know, you have something like lewd fantasy in the morning leads to an explosion in the afternoon. Uh, You have Wilhelm von Humboldt, who, who, um, he, he records like visits to prostitutes as an, like an accountant in return, his wife's lover lives with the Humboldts in their house in Jena, very openly, um, taking part in their social activities. Goethe is living together with his mistress, who's the mother of his son, also not married. So it's, and then you have Caroline, who was pregnant, who gave birth after after the pregnancy, after the um, pregnancy with a young soldier, then marries August Wilhelm. Friedrich, Friedrich Schlegel is also in love with her. But then she takes the, the young um, Schelling as her lover, and her husband doesn't mind at all because he has affairs. So, and he kind of jokes about it and says, well, you know, because he's 12 years younger, Schelling to Caroline. In, t- in time, she'll move on to even younger men um, who are still running around in, in a little sailor suit. So it's such a mess. And no one knows who's sleeping with him, that, with whom that one friend said the Schlegel household is the kind of big pigsty. So there's a lot of fun there also. But yeah, yeah, I think they're a family of outlaws, definitely. I, I think what's so impressive about this book, Andrea, is that, you know, a, 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 you managed to interweave this fabulous soap opera uh, with but it's some incredibly complex philosophical ideas which you explain in in, in layman's terms. Uh, for instance, uh, uh, the ideas of, of Johann Gottlieb Fichte, uh, this young uh, professor of philosophy at Jena University, um, who comes up with with the with the, with the philosophy of, of the self. Uh, can you unpack uh, that for us and tell us a little bit more about Fichte? Yeah, so Fichte is quite Fichte is quite a character. So he arrives in 1794 in Jena. He's a professor of philosophy at the university there. He gives his lectures dressed in riding boots with, boots with spurs and kind of whip in hand, and and he is feared for his volatile temper. So he, there's nothing gentle about him. He thunders and shouts. He stomps rather than walks. He eats his snuff snuff tobacco rather than inhaling it, and he's so popular that his lectures are so full that some of the students have to stand outside um, the windows, like on ladders to kind of see something. And what he does is so at a time, so they call him the Bonaparte of philosophy because he really revolutionized 
our way of thinking about us. And he, so at a time when most of Europe is held in the iron fist of absolutism, he gives the self the most thrilling of all powers, which is free will and self-determination. And he says, there are no God-given or absolute truth. The only certainty there is, is that the world is experienced by the self. Now, that might not sound so exciting to us because we're so used to understanding the world through the prism of our mind, of our, through the prism of our self. But for centuries, philosophers and thinkers had said that the world was ruled by a divine hand. And, you know, mathematics and rational observation might have paved, um, you know, the, the path to knowledge so we can understand say, natural laws, but we couldn't shape them. So we remained these kind of human cogs in this seemingly divinely ordained machine. So, so humans were certainly not free. So when Fichte said, the source of all reality is the self, it was an explosive um, idea. And he said, the self posits itself, which means the self basically brings itself into existence. Not only that, he also said, the, with through this initial powerful act, the self also brings the external world into existence, at least in, in, in our minds. So that didn't that he didn't mean that we create the world, but we create our self creates the knowledge of the world. And that was a radically new idea because it basically meant that the self, was the agent of everything. You know, the self was free. So, so this is the moment where he basically explained that the self ruled the world, not gods or you know, kings and queens. And this is the, the beginning of the of the modern of the modern self. Yeah. Which is you know a pretty incendiary idea, isn't it? When you, you live in an age of absolute power and divine right of kings and and and, and so on. So there we have. Yenna is the birthplace of self-consciousness, self-obsession, selfishness. <laughs> I mean, to what extent are we uh, uh, are we still living with the with the legacy of, of 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 those ideas? Do you think we still very much? I mean, we are a pretty selfish society. You know, we are kind of obsessed with with the self. I mean, there's a whole generation called the me generation, and you know, self-fulfillment has become the mantra. So their their ideas and their their you know, they tiptoe between selfishness and free will. And we we do exactly the same balancing act still today. So we are, you know, that is the beginning of how we are thinking today. It's really that moment in Yina. And, and, and it's, you know, it's a short moment. It's 10 years. So it's a kind of blink in the kind of, you know, great, you know, Western philosophy, but it's in a very, very important moment. Now, we uh, associate the romantics with Wordsworth, Coleridge, the Shelley, Shelley's, Byron Keats, uh, 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 but the, the, the term romantic is first used in Yenna. I mean, where, where does that, where, where does it come from? What does it mean in, in their terms, in, in the Yenna set's terms? So it's it's actually quite difficult to explain what it means because they are they they quite like the unwieldiness of you know its undefinability. But it is I think very important to remember that that you know the English Romantics were not the first Romantics. So the the Yena set are really the the first Romantics. They first use the word 
romantic in its new literary meaning. Um, and they launch romanticism as a international movement. So they give it its name and purpose, but also its intellectual freedom. So they are the first romantics, but not the kind of dreamy, brooding, kind of lovelorn type. So we, I think, you know, a lot of people would associate with romanticism kind of images of lone figures in a moonlit forest or poems about lovelorn uh, forlorn lovers. Um, many say the romantics have turned against um, reason. Others simply, when they hear the word romantic, think about candlelit dinner and uh, passionate declarations of love. None of that was what the Yena set thought. So they believed that romant romanticism was something much more complex and radical. And they um, they basically said that romanticism or romantic poetry was unruly, unwieldy, dynamic, alive. They called it, it was a living organism. And at the center of all of this stood poetry, but not in the way we understand it today, but in the old ancient Greek, ancient Greek um, meaning, which means productive and creative. So romantic poetry for them could be a poem, but it could also be a novel, it could be a painting, it could be a piece of music, it could be a scientific in, uh, experiment. So the, what they said is romantic poetry transcends discipline. So just as two elements could create a new chemical compound, they believed that romantic poetry could bring together different disciplines and create something distinctively new. So they wanted to unite humankind and nature. They wanted to, to unite the arts and the sciences. So they said, we want to romanticize the whole world. And, and Novalis said at some stage, we have to poeticize the sciences. Friedrich Schlegel said, um, I want to make Euclid singable. So you wanted to kind of turn math and, and physics into music. So that, that became very, very important for them. But it's it, difficult to explain. It's probably useful, actually, uh, uh, to bring in um, Schelling at this point, because uh, he he expands this idea of, of the unity between, you know, uh, the self and nature, doesn't he? It, it, placing humans firmly within nature, arguing that everything is is interconnected. And, and, and I quote from the frogs to the trees, to the stones, to the insects, to rivers, to humans. We are all linked together, forming this one. Uh, universal um, organism. It sort of reminded me a bit of James Lovelock, actually, and that sort of. Uh, and 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 this, uh, I mean, this has a big impact, doesn't it, on on uh, uh, on the way the, the 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 English romantics, you know, all those kind of walking through nature, writing poetry about nature, thought. Yeah. So Schelling is very important. So he came, he was twenty three when he became professor of philosophy. I mean, he's done everything very young and. He basically said there's a secret bond between the self and nature. And he, and, and he said that everything um, is linked together, as he said, forming one universal organism. So the living and the non-living world, he says, are ruled by the same underlying principles. And the self and nature is identical. And because that's what he believed, it, it, it then became... So the, if you take it to its conclusion, it means that if we are identical with nature, it means that if we walk through nature, scrambling up a kind of hill or walking through a forest, it's always 
a self-discovery. And this philosophy of oneness then becomes the heartbeat of romanticism, which becomes incredibly important for Samuel Taylor Coleridge, who travels, for example, to Germany to in 1798 to meet his heroes and to learn German. And he kind of annoyingly for a historian runs out of money, so he never makes it to Jena. But he's so obsessed with their works that he, for example, takes um, Schelling's work, translates pages and pages and pages and just passes them on as his own work. So when he, when Coleridge, when he publishes his own, um, his literary autobiography, Biographica Literaria, he gets accused by Thomas um, de Quincey, actually, that, you know, this is like barefaced plagiarism. And all of what, what Schelling is doing is, is very much um, kind of turning against what is pretty much the opposite of what Enlightenment thinkers had been saying. So they had, you know, celebrated rational observation, experiments, um, and, and um, rational thoughts. So scientists have kind of peered through microscopes to understand the minutiae of life. They have kind of lifted their telescopes to the skies to understand our place in the, in the universe. And this increasingly kind of rational approach to nature had created a certain distance to nature because nature was something that was meant to be observed through a kind of rational, objective perspective. And that was something the Yina said very much turned against and said, you know, the world has become this gigantic mill wheel that just grounds itself to dust. And they wanted to inject imagination and emotions back into, into it. Now, I want to ask you about, about your process, because I think people always find this really interesting. Um, uh, clearly, uh, you did a huge amount of research. You can see that from the, from the footnotes of the book. Um, they all wrote letters all of all the time. Was was that um, your most important source? And, and where do you find these letters? Yeah, they were. They were definitely. I mean, there are ten thousands and thousands of letters, and they are beautiful letters because they're all writers and poets. So it's actually really fun to read these letters. So they are. They are, and because these are big, big German, German names, they are very um, academic kind of letter editions where you you have like fifteen volumes of or more even, I think 30 volumes of Goethe's letter, for example. So um, they are, they are the, the kind of the skeleton of the research. Um, because I think, especially with a bunch of people who have you know, used the philosophy of the self as their, you know, that's how they understand the world, they you can't look at their work without their life because they're, their lives become platforms um, to try out this new philosophy of the self. And their, their, their individual experience becomes the, their guiding light in their work, but also in their life. So the letters are incredibly important. And what I've also found is that, I mean, some of their works are really, I mean, some of the philosophy is hard to read. Um, but in their letters, when they explain it to each other, it's often easier to understand. And you can also watch them kind of develop their ideas and how they kind of construct, um, you know, how we, how they argue with each other and how their ideas kind of come from that. So I think that the letters are very, very important. And of course, you've got loads of stuff about their sort of daily lives, uh, which I love, you know, what they eat, what they wear, you know, the walks they go on, the art galleries they go to, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, uh, I mean, what was it? 
that struck you about the way they lived then compared to the way we live now? Well, I tell you what, what I find just extraordinary is just how much work they did, but how much <laughs> fun they all, I mean, they played hard and they worked hard. Um, and then they had, and I mean, just what they produced, what they read, and then they still had like time to go for long, long walks and have like long dinner. So you kind of realize how much we are distracted by, you know, urban life, for example, or the internet and all these things that they could just focus on what they were doing. And um, so that for me, I think that was the, that was the, the, where you realize that it's just such a, such a different world. They um, didn't have all the distractions that we do. No. <laughs> and then, you know, yeah. the attention, their attention span is, you know, the kind mm. of depth they kind of dive into subjects again and again, you know, what is art, what is poetry, what is science, what's romantic poetry again and again and again, you know, why we just kind of glance over a headline and then kind of move on to the next subject. Yeah, you have this lovely passage where they all, uh, uh, they, they have a sort of group of them go to Dresden where um, there are these amazing art collections actually to, to this day because the, the Grand Duke of, of that particular state was a big art collector. And, uh, and they spend hours um, walking noisily through the galleries, comment, standing in front of a painting for, you know, a long time, each painting. And they go back again and again, even at nighttime. <laughs> and yeah. just, uh, it's, it's, it's wonderful. Yeah, they. I mean, so that's one of their summer vacations, you know, weeks and weeks on end. And they just go through the galleries with torches at night or and Carolina actually writes about this um, a very long essay in one of their in their um, in their literary magazine. So, yes, they so they do stuff together all the time. Um, it's really I mean, they they use the word sim. There's the prefix sim and added to a lot of words, so like sim philosophizing, sim poetry, and sim basically meant together. And for them, it meant so they called it, you know, they called their 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 literary magazine was their first symphony. So you know, it means for them, you know, they really believe that two minds can produce something better than um, than one mind. I'm going to move to questions uh, uh, in in a second, but I mean, just just finally, what what is the resonance of their story today? Would you would you say? Well, for me, I I sort of, I mean, I would have not written this book if I'd not thought that they have a huge impact because I'm here is I'm interested in history, you know, not because it's history, but because I want to know why we are who we are, and so at the heart of the of the magnificent rebels is really this this tension between the breathtaking possibilities of free will and the pitfalls of selfishness. And I think we are still empowered by their kind of daring leap into the self, but the self has stayed at center stage for the better or the worse. And, and I think that underlying, underpinning everything are two, um, two essential questions. Who am I as an individual and who am I as a member of a society? So how can I, how can I live a meaningful life and still pursue my dreams, but still be a morally good person, how can I reconcile my personal liberty with the demands of a society? And I think the pandemic is a great example for that. You know, millions of us gave up our basic rights just for, you know, because we believed that this was the right thing for the greater good, but some of us didn't. And they insisted that their personal liberty was more um, important. But so... 
from the moment that Fichte put the self at the nexus of his philosophy, we had to deal with the kind of perils of this emboldened self. But I think, you know, I mean, he never intended a narcissistic kind of um, celebration of the self, because what he always said is that freedom is tightly interwoven with moral obligations. Um, so, so freedom gives us the choice on how to act and behave. It kind of elevates us over our base instincts and, and freedom always comes with its twin, which is moral duty. So I think when, you know, we, we think today that we are free to think that we are, you know, free to shape our opinions, control our lives. But I think recently it's become very, very clear that this very core of our society is under threat, be it through Russia cyber interference in democratic societies, be it through fake news and social media, or more recently in the US, the overturning, overruling of Roe versus Wade by the Supreme Court. So I think right now, where all of this is so under threat, I think it is quite important to go back and remind ourselves, you know, where does this modern self come from? Where does our hard-won self-determination come from? And how much are we going to fight for this, you know, at a time when our democracies are hollowed out by liars and by despots? So I think they are incredibly important, their story, and very, very relevant today. Um, one question we've got is that the, 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 there's a feminist saying that the personal is political. Would that be true um, uh, uh, of the magnificent rebels? I think so. Yes, yeah. I think so very much. So I think, you know, Fichte's, Fichte's philosophy is very much going kind to of build on the spark of the French Revolution. They want to change. I mean, they liberated the self with the intention of creating a better society. So I think it is, it, is very, it is very political. Their intentions are political. But at the same time, because in the moment you liberate the self, I think the personal becomes political because it's a political statement you're making, but you're using your own self for this. So yes. There's, um, uh, this is, and I'm not sure whether you'll be able to answer this. I don't know. Um, are, there, are there any modern equivalents to Yenna? <laughs> I don't know. think of one. I no. don't know. I, I, I mean, I think there are always these times in history where, um, like, where, like, it's almost like a magnified moment where groups come together. Um, I mean, I suppose some people would argue like Silicon Valley is like this. I mean, you know, I'm, I don't mean that it yeah. doesn't have, because it doesn't have to be positive or negative or, you know, but you mm. have a kind of cluster of ingenious thinkers who kind of, you know, rewired our brain essentially. Um, so it doesn't, you know, it doesn't always have to be. A, be possible, yes, but in terms of a cluster of, yeah. of, of, of people, that's yes, that would it's work. Also, I think it's often also that we only realize this in hindsight. So, yes, if it is happening right now, we might only realize it in 20 or 30 or 50 years, maybe. Mm. And uh, would something like the Yenna set today be shut down by cancel culture? Is another question. <laughs> <laughs> It's a good question, but I, f I find it always very difficult to use the parameters of our time in in history. I find it very difficult. I, you know, it's all, I always had that with with Alexander von Humboldt when people would say like, "What would he say about climate change today?" I don't know. You know, I really don't know what what would happen today with a group like this. You know, I don't. I think the way they acted and they were together wouldn't actually happen today. 
Another question, what did the church think of them? Were they religious in any way? Well, that's a very interesting question. So um, I don't know of anything um, that the church complained about them. I don't think they thought, you know, it was important enough there and then um, because their importance kind of really became bigger and bigger later on. But what is interesting is that during this time, they were trying to create a new religion. And it was a religion that, because they they basically complained that the church had stripped, basically Protestantism, had stripped the religion of all kind of really spirituality and, and color and incense and feelings. And so, so Friedrich Schlegel, who was um, always quite, you know, he's quite arrogant, quite, you know, full of himself. He basically said, I want to be a new Luther or Mohammed and create, you know, write a new Bible. And But then a lot of them later on when they're older become quite um, religious and conservative. So Friedrich Schlegel, for example, towards, I mean, the end, I mean, in the middle of his life, really, when he's like in his late 30s, early 40s, he converts to um, Catholicism, for example. So they they become much more religious later on. But the church, as far as I know, did not really complain about them because they were just, you know, they were these kind of rebellious young thinkers at that time. I don't think the church took them that serious. Now, uh, this is a question about uh, Napoleon. I'm glad somebody's asked this because all of these events are happening against the sort of, you know, distant drumbeat of, of the Napoleonic Wars. Um, the question is, given the fascination the, the Yenna Romantics had with the French Revolution, was it ironic or indeed appropriate that Yenna was subsequently the site of Napoleon's defeat of Prussia? Uh, that's a great question. So let me just explain this a little bit. Um, the end of the Yenna set, really, and the end of um, Yenna's reign is the Battle of Jena in 1806 when Napoleon descends with his 150,000 uh, soldiers on this tiny little town and when and this I mean he destroys the almighty Prussian army and when the French leave the little town is completely devastated so you have um, houses burned food in it the houses are looted corpses are rotting in the street there's no food and drink left i mean it's and the, the student numbers drop from almost 900 to under 200 so it's really the end of jena and and the interest but the interesting thing is that despite napoleon's destructive force let's say like this as he's marching through um the german states a lot of germans actually welcome him because he's he is the well, for the for the Jena said he's really the romantic um, ideal of a, of a genius, you know, because he's kind of propelled by his own talents, um, and and he embodied this kind of force of nature. But for a lot of Germans, uh, they actually wanted the French to win because that would have meant living in a republic rather than you know ruled by a duke or a monarch or something like that. So it's this kind of very divided. Um, feeling they have so when 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 he when he when napoleon arrives in jena although it threatens people kind of you know they might die they still i mean hegel for example calls him the world soul when he sees him riding through jena although he might you know be killed it's still um this embodiment of a better society 
Um, here's a good question. How do they all get the money to do all of this? How, how did they earn their living? <laughs> and there's quite a lot about this in the book, I should say. It's a lot about money. <laughs> <laughs> it's a <laughs> that's, that's a good question. So they, they struggled with money all the time. So the Schlegels never really had much money. So Carolina, for example, at, at her dinner parties, uh, she serves gherkins, potatoes and herrings and kind of like a tasteless soup. And a visitor says, you know, the, 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 the food, it's not the food, it's the intellectual menu that she prepares. Friedrich Schlegel, the younger brother, I mean, he really does not want to work at all. So he is constantly asking people for money i mean and running away from his you know uh, from his death but august william schlegel gets paid quite well for his reviews so although they don't have a lot of money but it's through writing so they write for literary magazines for example they don't earn a lot of money with their with their books Novalis, the poet Novalis, is really the only one who has a proper job he is a, he's a mining inspector so he is Although he is an aristocrat, his family, you know, doesn't have a lot of money. So he works in the in the in the family mines with his father. So that Goethe is the one who really has a lot of money. I mean, he comes he came from a wealthy merchant family, and he is the best paid poet in the in the um in in and, the he, and he has all these jobs doesn't he sort of public yeah. service jobs working for the duke and you know exactly exactly designing and, stuff for him and yeah. yeah and then and then some of them have jobs at the university so they get paid and they get paid by the number of their students because the students pay them directly so both fichte and Schelling earn quite okay because they have you know huge i mean they have like 400 students half the students of Jena go to their lecture so they earn all right um Friedrich Schiller is always struggling with money. Although he's a, a very famous playwright, um, he's never earning quite enough because he lives in a you know big house. And so yeah, money is always on their mind. Somebody's asked about about the role of Alexander von Humboldt within the Yenna set. Humboldt obviously being the, the, the subject of your last book. How, how did he fit into all of this? So Humboldt, Alexander von Humboldt, arrived in Jena because his brother, Wilhelm von Humboldt, was living there with his wife. So he came to visit his brother. And um, because Goethe was at that time so fascinated with the sciences, um, he... I mean, he just fell for Alexander von Humboldt. He said, like, he has woken me out of hibernation, my scientific thinking, my natural history kind of interest. And Humboldt would spend months on end in Jena. So there's one, there's one visit in 90 in 1797 where he stays for three months, and he sees Goethe almost every single day. So he's he's really um encouraging Goethe to kind of work on the sciences. But I think Jena is more important for Humboldt. So because the time in Jena changes Alexander von Humboldt from being a Enlightenment scientist who believes in you know, experiments and rational thought and observation and turns him into the man, the, the scientist he became later, someone who says we need to, we can't, you know, we need to measure nature and we need to understand it and observe it. But we also always have to use our imagination to truly understand it. And he says, that this comes from his time in Jena because that time had given him new organs to see the world. And it's with those new organs that he then travels to South America. So he sees this new world through the lens of what he has learned 
in yin. And Goethe is very, very important there because Goethe is the one who says, you know, you need to you need to use your subjective feeling also to understand um, uh, the scientific world. So for for Humboldt, it is incredibly important what's happening uh, what's happening in yin. And he's I mean he comes up with this idea that everything's an interconnected organism as he's traveling through South America, which I think is partly due to meeting the indigenous people there. Um, but at the same time. So when he returns in 1799, that's the moment when Schelling develops his philosophy of oneness. So, so Humboldt's ideas are kind of partly from his expeditions and then partly the philosophical foundation is found in Schelling's um, early philosophy. Okay, final question, so we're running out of time. But um, did, the, did the duchies, the duchy authorities and church have much influence uh, on their thought and escapades. And then there is a particular instant that you, you relate in the book where they, they went a, a little bit too far, even for the yeah, so, liberal duchy. So it is, so just to underline, this is, it is liberal there and they, uh, and the censorship is, I mean, not very much enforced at all. So they can really pretty much, teach and do whatever they want. But then there's a particular moment when Fichte writes a pamphlet um, in which he describes that God is really only a kind of moral entity and um, and that the, the church people in, in neighboring Saxony get very upset about that. And But the, the ruler there is a relative to the ruler of the ruler in of the duchy in um, Saxe Weimar and says, like, well, you need to do something about this kind of outrageous philosopher. And the Duke uses it really to get rid of Fichte because Fichte is just a little bit too revolutionary in his political views. So he's telling his students, like, in 30 years, there won't be any kings and queens anymore. So the Duke kind of goes, like, okay, this is like going a little bit too far. So there's a kind of terrible moment when, when Fichte kind of, he, you know, says like, well, I'm going to have to resign if this and this happens. And they say like, fine. So then he has, you know, he's basically been handed his notice and he leaves. So he leaves Jena in 1799 because of that. But most of the time they can actually pretty much say and write what they want. They just have to be sometimes, you know, it, it can't be, I mean, they, they have a, they, they write fragments, um, what they, so like little, they're almost like little aphorisms in their, in their, um, literary magazine and Friedrich Schlegel says at some stage these are great because they write hundreds of them and he says within the hundreds we can hide once in a while a kind of really revolutionary one um, because the police will not look at these kind of philosophical fragments so it's a it's a kind of way of you know smuggling something in there I think. Andrea Wolf thank you so much um, for having written this marvellous book <laughs> which thank I have loved reading and for a fascinating conversation. And then uh, thanks to the audience for your great questions. And I'm going to pass back to Rosie. Thank you both so much. Um, that was just simply wonderful. And I love the idea of um, smuggling those small ideas in, which is, I suppose, what everybody does all the time now is smuggling an idea. Andrea, congratulations on the book. And Kirsty, thank you so much for a great conversation. I hope you'll all buy it. And um, I look forward to seeing you all again soon. We've got lots of 5 by 15s coming up in September. Uh, and so all I can say is thank you very, very much indeed. That was absolutely fabulous. And good night. <laughs>